Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about The Golden Doom by Lord Dunsany. This, uh, this play was originally published in 1914. Yeah, we're uh, we're starting out 2020 with some really great pieces here, I think, right? Both of these are getting us to break out of our mold a little bit. Last time we had this pseudo-history that was more like a chronicle than a story, at least loosely anyway. And now this time, yeah, we're doing a short play. But before we get into The Golden Doom, we want to say a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. We are just back from PhilCon, the Philadelphia SFCon, where the whole network was there, all four of us. And we put on seven, maybe eight panels and live shows. I just generally tried to be a presence at the con. Uh, We probably sound a little exhausted from it, but it was a lot of fun. We met a lot of great people. There is, though, of course, considerable expense in going to a con. And so we just could not actually have done that without our Patreon support. And so we just want to say thank you so much for making that possible. And of course, some of those shows will make it onto the public podcast eventually, and the other events we recorded will get onto Patreon as well. So we hope everyone else will have a chance to enjoy the con as much as we did. Yeah, I want to echo my thanks as well. It's hard to understate how grateful we are for the support we get at Clay Temple Media. It's kind of crazy that, you know, this just started off as a conversation between us, Glenn, and now um, we have people who are supporting us to do these shows. And it's so amazing. And we love our supporters. Uh, we love our Patreon supporters, and we love everybody who listens to this podcast. So we'd like to thank you know everybody who contributes in whatever way they can uh, for supporting Clay Temple Media, because it, it means the world to us. And it allows us to keep doing this in ways that we didn't really expect we'd be able to do when we got started. Switching gears here, I'm going to spend a moment talking about The Golden Doom. This is, as we've said twice already, a short play. Uh, it takes place in the past, you know, some while the uh, play note says before the fall of Babylon, which is before like 539 BCE or like 540. So this is like old ancient history. And it's a short play. And I don't want to say too much more about it because a lot of what Dunsany is doing is some is subverting um, classical play Uh, genre elements. And I want to just go into that as we go through the recap. So Glenn, why don't we just start uh, by going through the recap and I'll be able to comment on really how ingenious some of the devices Dunsany is using, uh, how they appear in this play. Yeah, I'm going to be excited for this because I think you have a lot more experience with drama as a form of literature than I do. I'm a massive Shakespeare fan, but that's really about the extent of my experience with with stage drama as opposed to to screen drama. So yeah, we, the first thing we really need to say before we get into this, right, is to just emphasize that we are doing a play. And so that means that the, the writing is almost entirely dialogue. We're not going to get thick descriptions of exotic locations, and we're not going to get too much action described for us either. Either, though there are some interesting stage directions here. And the second thing we should do, of course, is set the stage. And as you said, Brandon, this is taking place shortly before the fall of Babylon. So, you know, we're dealing with a city-state, basically, or a city-state with an accompanying empire in the Near East in antiquity. And our story begins with a pair of sentries guarding the great door of the king's palace. And I guess they're really just engaging in what I would call a little bit of soldier's talk in order to pass the time. And one of the sentries is fantasizing about a more comfortable life, a life in the shade rather than a life standing out here under the sun. 
But the other one is thinking about politics and worrying about the future. All of this, this whole conversation, this feels authentic to my military experience for sure. It feels authentic to the military experience that I guess ultimately germinated this podcast, you know, uh, 15 years ago when we were having right. conversations like this. But what we're meant to get out of this exchange is that this century is worried that the king is spending too much time on foreign policy and international intrigue and not nearly enough time placating the gods. And of course, ignoring the gods is going to signal the doom of the kingdom. And although I've just said gods, because I think that's what we would lean on, that's not actually quite right. That's not really the the word that Dunsany uses. It is a word that will appear in the story. But in the cosmology of these fantasy people here, gods are actually the servants or maybe messengers of the stars. It's, it's the stars who need to be placated and worshipped. And this cosmology here, this reminded me a lot of a story by John V. Marsh. And we're actually about to get some other language here that reminded me of a different Gene Wolfe story. And I'll just read this here. This is what this the sentry says at this point. He says, If a doom from the stars falls suddenly on a king, it swallows up his people and all things round about him. And his palace falls and the walls of his city and citadel and the apes come in from the woods and the large beasts from the desert so that you would not say that a king had been there at all. And this is a a really, I think, gorgeous passage here, and it is meant to sound like a passage from one of the Old Testament prophets, maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah, somebody like that, though it's not actually a direct quotation. But this use of apes here, which is actually a word that does not appear in any of these Old Testament prophets, the use of the word apes here, this image, this really reminded me of Operation Ares. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I I really haven't... uh put this play in conversation with Gene Wolfe at all. So that's like a really fascinating uh, approach uh, that you've taken because we know that that Gene Wolfe was a, a big fan of Lord Dunsany. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it kind of feels out of place, but I love this, this setting that we get from the centuries early on and how it sets up this, uh, you know, this ancient this ancient world, this this uh, world of antiquity, and it's using these animals that we just don't associate with uh, this region or area, um, and it's it's fantastic, and it is a little wolfy. It's it's fascinating. I do want to say that you know, uh, right off the bat, based on the the stage notes and and things like that, stage direction and the uh, playwright's notes at the beginning here, we're, we're dealing with a single setting in a one act play. This whole play takes place outside of the iron doors of the king's palace, as you said. And I want to point out here that the play really opens a bit like Hamlet, which I really like. You know, you you have to... It's something that Shakespeare did also as a playwright, which was to uh, use language or scenes from other plays or... uh, mention characters from other things that are going on to give give a sense of reality, but also to highlight the genre of the play. What can people expect who are going to a lot of plays? And this bit with the, the two sentries or two guards talking, the way it opens like Hamlet, how they're talking about the king and the kingdom and, and what's going on, really should set us up for, for all we need to know about this play, uh, which is that it could be a tragic play, uh, just like Hamlet is. But Glenn, you also pointed out, rightly so, that that we're introduced immediately into the religious religious and cosmological beliefs of this world that these characters live in. And it's just expertly done. It's it's fantastic world building with 
dialogue. And what Dunsany is doing is giving each of these characters different concerns and an excuse to talk about uh, what is concerning them. And before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about the genre of tragedy in plays. And the genre of tragedy is really rooted in the concept of uh, man in a high position being brought low. And it's less caught up in the concept of everyone dying at the end of the play, though that occasionally happens because death is really uh, the final blow when you're, you've been brought out of your position, you've been humiliated or humbled, and then you die without being able to redeem yourself. And the sentries here are concerned that they are participating in a sort of tragic story. And we'll get more of that. They're concerns about war, the types of lives they're living. They're concerns about how the king is spending his time and wealth. In, in their opinion, the king just really is not up to snuff. And really what's going on is he's just not sacrificing enough to the stars. And all of this is going to make up the conflicts that are going to drive the story for the rest of the play. And Dunsany does it in about uh, 12 lines of dialogue. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. All of the language of this century who's making these speeches, and, and of course, the title of the play itself does signal this idea of, of doom, right? The whole setup of this is that this is going to be a story about a doom from the stars. Doom is there in the title of the play as well. But when we get to the end, we might actually question whether this is really a tragedy or not. And something that hadn't really occurred to me until you started laying it out like this, Brandon, is that the conversation between these two centuries here, first century and second century, is almost a conversation between people who think they're in totally different plays, right? The the century who has done the bulk of the speaking so far clearly thinks that he's in a tragedy and that that some kind of doom is coming no matter what. We don't even have like the inciting incident yet, but he's still no matter what certain that some kind of doom is coming. But the other century is talking about how awesome it would be to be on a barge right now and like just having a nice life in the shade. <laughs> like he actually, I think, is concerned with things that comedies are concerned about, right? How do I get a good life? How do I get more happiness for myself? Uh, by shirking my responsibilities somehow, right? He's a, a he's almost kind of a, a clown character from Shakespeare in in that sense, and I actually think that's rather a brilliant setup here at the beginning is to have these two characters, one representing comedy and one representing tragedy, having this conversation here, and we'll have to keep that in mind when we get to the the end of this play. Well, so all of that's been the setup, but now we're going to get some visitors to the gate of the palace. Uh, the first is from Thessaly. This is a region in Greece, and he's told that the palace door itself is sacred and cannot be approached. But then we get the visitors who are really going to matter, and these are two kids, a boy and a girl. The boy has come to the king's door to ask for a toy. He, he wants a, a little hoop that he can play with. Uh, he and the girl banter about which of their fathers is better. The girl's father is a soldier who's even taller than the sentries, but the boy's father can write. Uh, and in fact, he's taught his son here to write as well. And, and here we get what I think is probably the best line of the play when the girl says, writing frightens nobody. Uh, this is going to turn out actually not to be true here in the play, and it does feel a little bit like Dunsany maybe has an axe to grind against people who dismiss writing. Uh, there are a couple other places where something like that is going on here in the play, I think, as well. But what is really going on here at this moment is that the girl has composed a poem that she is proud of, and that poem is this. 
I saw a purple bird go up against the sky, and it went up and up, and round about did fly. But that's all she's got, just these four lines, because she couldn't think of any other words that rhyme with sky. But fortunately, the, the boy who can read is here to help, and he adds the line, I saw it die. Now, the girl is critical because this line doesn't scan, it doesn't fit the meter, though the boy insists that this doesn't matter. And again, this line feels like the voice of the author coming through here. And so the boy and the girl here, they argue about whether the boy actually likes the poem since he's inserted this non-metrical, this non-scanning line. And in the end, to prove that he really does actually like her poem, he offers to write the poem down for her since she's not literate. And he takes a lump of gold that he found on a previous adventure that he'd had, and he uses it to write the poem on the door of the palace and does this somehow without the sentries noticing that he's got like this big, you know, gold rock and is etching this into the, the door. And of course, right at this point, we can see where the story is going from here. I, I'll have a little bit to say about the sentry's attitude to the children in just, just a little bit when it becomes a little bit more clear about what's going on with this poem and the children and the sentries really just not even noticing that they exist. And we'll see that they're more aware of a dog in the distance than they are of the kid's behavior and what they're up to. You know, one thing the boy is trying to do when he's talking to the sentries is asking them if he can't pray to the king, if he can't ask the king for a hoop. And a king or a lord is, you know, in this time or in the in the kind of time that Dunsany is imagining, is meant to dispense good gifts to his subjects. You know, th this really indicates that the people of this kingdom represent the king as as a conduit or a representative of the dis divine in some way. This use of the word praying to the king or even praying to the sacred door is uh, really sets up the attitude that like a common person or a child would have about the king. And I think it's another great touch of world building that just that that Dunsany inserts uh, without comment. I mean, this really is a, a very, very tightly constructed play. I want to talk about the poem as well. But before I do, I really want to talk about the stranger from Thessaly who shows up here, has one line and doesn't really factor into the play in any other way. So Th Thessaly is a part of Greece. And I, and I wonder if this isn't a nod to the Odyssey that Dunsany is making. And if it is what he's trying to alert us of uh, that is important about these ancient cultures. And one thing that really stands out in the Odyssey is that hospitality to strangers is very, very important. And it's a, it's a way of demonstrating your greatness as a kingdom or as an estate holder. And the fact that the king has basically ordered his sentries to turn away strangers from other lands is really troubling in the genre of ancient literature and ancient plays. And so again, the alarms are going off for me that this play is uh, headed in a tragic direction. The king is turning away strangers. And this is just not something you do if you're a great ruler. And the stranger from Thessaly has a real interesting response to being told by the sentries that he's not even allowed to approach the door because the door is sacred, where he scoffs at the idea that a material object like that could be sacred, could be holy in some way. And then he just kind of 
goes off, you know, almost as if he's shaking his head at the strange customs of this land that he is visiting for some reason. So he his, his only line there really is to be critical of the religious beliefs that are going to drive the plot of this story. And really also it sets up a conflict between the material world and the spiritual world. And that really comes into focus uh, when the prophets come in and speak a little bit later on in the story. I want to talk about this poem real quick, because I think Lord Dunsany is doing something that's really cool here as well. So the poem is written in iambic trimeter, uh, which was a form used by the ancient Greeks in their poetry. So like in the 20th century, a lot of what we're taught in schools, uh, really because of Shakespeare, is written in like iambic pentameter, uh, which is five feet. Uh, iambic trimeter has three feet. So in the meter of the poem, you get like da 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 for trimeter and then iambic pentameter is the one everybody knows which is like da 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 um so lord dunsany is really just keeping his poetry in the play like specific to the time that it was written and i think it's a great touch and i think this is the sort of thing that gene wolf does as well when he's writing about other worlds is to not is to simply place in these touches of the time period that he's writing in without commenting on them and keeping them in English or whatever. And I just, I think he, maybe he picked it up from Dunsany here. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. I think it's, I think it's pretty cool that, that he's done that. And the imagery of this poem is about as plain as it can be, right? Purple being royal, bird flies too high in the sky and is, you know, struck low, even though that's the line that the boy has added here, right? This is straight out of every classical prophecy ever, right? We as the audience know exactly what this portends, although we don't have any reason here right now to think that these these lines are in any way ominous and that they're in any way an omen or a prophecy because we've just seen these little kids just doing this out of their imagination. But now that is all about to change because we're going to get the entrance of three of the king's spies who notice this writing on the door. And then the king himself enters with his chamberlain, and Dunsany here gives very precise instructions at this entrance about what the sentries do here. Uh, and this is really one of the most elaborate stage directions that I've ever encountered. Uh, I do think that all of these elaborate movements with the, the spears and saluting would look fairly cool on stage. But it also may be the case that we're supposed to find this kind of absurd. And maybe that's something we can take up in the discussion. And maybe this is one of the limitations of, of reading the script rather than seeing this performed. But to the poem, right? That's what's going to drive the story here. So, of course, this poem that the kids have written on the door is a problem. The sentries somehow don't know who did this because they were not really paying any attention to the kids at all. And as you said earlier, Brandon, they have more information about a dog that they could see out on the horizon than the fact that these kids are like standing just like right behind them at their legs doing this. Uh, and they just don't notice this. And these sentries can't read the writing here anyway. The king also cannot, and, and the spies also cannot, right? And there's another great line here when the king castigates the spies for being illiterate. But one of the spies says, We read shadows, and we read footprints, and whispers in secret places, but we do not read writing. This is just brilliant stuff here. I love this line of dialogue. I was going to read it if you... Uh if you had chosen not to, it is so good. It is such a good bit of dialogue. I absolutely love that Dunsany has written this. It demonstrates 
the spy's ability to uh, kind of manipulate events in their favor and be like charming and, uh, you know, whatever they can be to get out of a tough situation. But at the same time, he's they're they're talking to the king. It's so good. It's such a good bit of characterization through dialogue. And, and, and here I also want to talk about now the attitude that the centuries have towards children. And this attitude is that children have no ability to really impact the course of events on a political or cosmological stage. And that's not to say that they don't have like a full ability to act in the world. But it's an attitude of the classical world that maybe they shouldn't, maybe children shouldn't act in the world, or people shouldn't take children's or adults shouldn't take children's actions seriously or even notice them because children haven't become what they ought to be yet. And it's a it's a classical philosophy idea that, that really sets up the core irony of the play's resolution uh, because we see that the children writing this being beneath the notice, maybe literally and maybe on stage this looks really cool with the centuries being caught up talking about war and the king's warmongering and how much he loves to how much he loves to expand his empire and wealth and meanwhile the little scribblings of children on a door is going to set the course for really the kingdom here and i wonder if dunsany is being critical of this sort of aristotelian idea about children or at least a classical greek idea about children uh that's rooted in people moving along a path to what they become or like a teleology and that because children aren't there they have no right to speak of politics of uh, the events in the cities in the city state, they're they're still in training. They're still being molded, and these are really young kids. So they're even more beneath the notice of anybody because they haven't really received any training yet. Except they have. The boy knows how to write. The girl can uh, create poems on the fly, and it's just it's really cool. There's so much irony in this play. It's like irony the play basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. These kids have a skill set. They have several skill sets that these adults in these high positions, these important positions in society, or certainly in terms of court society here, just don't have. And there, it is hilarious. And later on, we're going to see this kind of shift to the perspective of the kids. And I think that's how we'll ask whether this really was a tragedy or a comedy, whether this has a, a sad ending or a happy ending at the end here. But because no one here can read the the writing the the kings the spies the the sentries we need the chamberlain to read it aloud and he does so and of course now there are serious misgivings about what it portends uh, the king thinks it's a message from the stars but the chamberlain thinks that it is merely the treasonous work of some subject some perfectly mundane human subject but in either case they need the prophets of the stars to interpret it that's a great title there prophets of the stars and in fact these guys are just as cool as their name suggests they have different colored cloaks depending on the outcome of their interpretation and they've brought them with them uh, so they can determine you know what clothes they need to get into at the end of their their job here they have gold for rejoicing they have green for young new beautiful things promised by the stars and then they have black cloaks in the event that it is a doom and of course they read the poem they know exactly what it signifies here 
So, of course, it is a doom. It is a judgment from the stars. It obviously means that the king has dared too much. He's appropriated the glory of the stars for himself and now must die. And as we learned at the top of the play from the the sentry who is interested in these things, if the stars punish the king, the whole kingdom will also be punished. So this is serious business. Yeah. One thing I can't emphasize enough here is... Again, the use of dramatic irony that Lord Dunsany is really leaning on here. We know exactly how this poem got written on the wall, we on the door. We know the origin of this poem. But the stumbling block to all these people, these wealthy people, these people in high positions, the kings and, and the chamberlains and the high servants, uh, including the prophets, is that the poem is written in pure gold. The chamberlain is insisting that this is just an idle rhyme and they can just clean it off. But because it's written in gold, it must be a prophecy from the stars, even though we know that it's just happenstance. It's almost like a, an absurd, like contingent fact of the play that the boy happened to find this gold in the river. And I think we'll we'll have to talk about whether these people are living in a mundane universe or really a supernatural universe. And this section of the play really highlights the question of whether these religious beliefs are well-founded or not. The centuries talk about seeing a star falling to the earth the other day. And that's for us, a natural event. We see shooting stars regularly. I mean, if we live in an area without too much light pollution. (laughs) But Dunsany really commits to his cosmology or the cosmology of his characters here. And only the Chamberlain is thinking about the material cause and effect that would have led to something being written on the iron door in pure gold. And the king has some concerns here about maybe how his material gains have offended the spiritual world. And this is, again, central to the working of the play. You have this materiality that we saw with the stranger from Sicily coming up against these spiritual realities that these prophets and and many people in the kingdom contend are true. But the king still believes he's a good king. He believes he's done right by his people, and he's done right by his ancestors, by expanding the kingdom. So Dunsany's just laying it all on here. It's it's fantastic, and the conflicts are fully realized, and the dramatic irony plays out beautifully. The king has a really interesting reaction to this interpretation that he gets from the, the prophets, because he does feel that he's been a great king, and therefore it seems obvious and, and natural that his end should come from a god sent by the stars and not from some other rival king or from an uprising of the people whom he's clearly treated too well to to do such a thing. But this is kind of a self-centered, selfish reaction to this, because the thing that everyone else is worried about is not the king himself, but about the kingdom. And But that's not what he is thinking about. He's just thinking about his own mortal existence, uh, it, it, it seems. And so the chief prophet here cautions him against thinking of this as Uh, kind of a a good thing, almost an an honor. And he says, it is better to give worship to the stars than to do good to man. It is better to be humble before the gods than proud in the face of your enemy, though he do evil. And so the king does calm down here and he realizes that, yeah, okay, he should try to placate the stars, uh, that he should hope that this is just a warning and not a doom, and that he can do something about it, do something to protect his people. Obviously, what the stars need is a sacrifice. And of course, They love children. 
And this line is delivered almost exactly like this, right? The king says, what should I sacrifice to the gods? They say that the gods love children. And so the, the comedy here, right, is that this probably doesn't really mean that they love children for eating or like they love children for burning or like for being sacrificed to them, but that they actually love children in the way that we would mean that. And of course, we've seen some children in this play, right? The children who wrote the poem on the door to begin with. And so immediately at this moment, right, we worry that Dunsany is channeling the muse of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus phase here, and that these kids are going to get thrown onto a fire because they played in the wrong place. Yeah, Dunsany is really just leading us down the path of irony that the play will end in tragedy. What the, what the king says in the, in the section in the bit of dialogue where he says that they say that the gods love children. Um, what Dunsany does to really set up tension here is start the king's response to the chief prophet by saying, let the stars hearken yet, and I will sacrifice a child to them. I will sacrifice a girl child to the twinkling stars and a male child to the stars that blink not, the stars of the steadfast eyes. Let a boy and a girl be brought for sacrifice. Uh, and he tells this to the spies who then leave the stage. And you're just like, yeah, the kids are going to eat it here. And this is going to be a weird form of justice where the whole setup about the iron door being sacred and anybody who touches it has to die is going to come true by accident. And Dunsany is just doubling down on every element of a tragic play here. The dramatic irony is going to lead to the death of of the characters through no real mistake of their own, just these flaws in character, the children's playfulness, the king's pride. And it's just a a, a wonderful setup uh, for what will turn out to be a punchline as we reach the end of the poem. Right, because this is not actually what ends up happening. In the end, the chief prophet suggests that what the king needs to sacrifice is not kids, but is his pride. And of course, The symbol of his pride is his crown. And ultimately, they decide that the best course of action is not to destroy the crown in in a fire or something like that, but is to leave it outside the door to the palace so that the god who wrote the warning on the the door in the first place can come by later and take this crown up to the the stars. So once they do this and everyone goes back inside the the palace to just sort of wait for the, the sacrifice to be received, to be accepted... The boy comes by again, sees the crown sitting there, and from his perspective, his prayer has been answered, right? He came to this door and asked the king, he prayed to the king's sacred door for a new hoop to play with. And look, here is a new iron hoop here waiting for him. And there's also a scepter, which from his perspective is just a stick that he can use to play with this hoop. And he just runs off with his new toy. And now the play concludes with some time having passed and the palace door creaks open. A spy peers out to see that the crown is gone. And the last line of the play is the king saying, the stars are satisfied. And he is just never any the wiser that all that has really happened here is that some kids were playing on his lawn, basically. Right. Uh, There there are a few things uh, to... There are a few things I want to mention here before we get into the discussion. First is just Dunsany's use of metonymy here, his his expert use of it, uh, where the chief prophet literally says, the crown, which is your pride. And metonymy is figurative language where uh, kind of a thing stands in for something else, you know, the crown for the king or 
in this example, the crown for pride. But here in this world, there's like a, a, a literal transference that is taking place between the, uh, you know, figurative example of the crown representing pride to the crown actually being pride, where you have this like weird meeting of the, you know, non-material and the material in the same way the door is a, is a sacred thing for some reason. So the crown is not merely a representative of the king's pride. It, it actually is that thing. And so sacrificing that may appease the gods. Although the king just says he'll just rule without a crown. And that's not really that a big deal to him um, because nothing materially changes, but he sacrifices this object, which may actually have him lose his pride um and and yeah glenn you're absolutely right this boy gets his stick and hoop at the end of the play and it turns out this play is not a tragedy at all it's instead a comedy and what seems to be all this dramatic irony leading up to uh, a tragic ending is revealed to be the sort of irony that's more akin to what's used in a farce where things are just not as they seem characters are mistaken for other characters and actions are taken in ways they're not intended uh, to turn this play into a comedy. And it's a brilliant, brilliant subversion of tragedy. Maybe one of the finest I've read. I mean, I, I don't think I've read a play that is using this technique um, before that is leaning so heavily on the generic influences of its past, of the time period it's trying to set it in, and undermining them to really just tell a really long joke about a boy getting a new toy. And I, and so I think the first uh, discussion question I want to ask here is, uh, we've said the play is a comic play, but do you read it as a tragic play on any level? And, and do you think that Dunsany is effective in the way that he's subverting dramatic conventions to stage the play well i'll answer that last question first because i think it's the easier one to tackle and and the answer has to be yes he is a master of technique here he's a master of the form this is something i would love to see staged there actually aren't that many characters so you know i guess since we're fresh off philcon one of the things i was thinking about while i was reading this is next year philcon we should find a way to stage this <laughs> i'm not sure anyone wants that but us though i don't know if you do want that let us know we can maybe see if we can make that happen but yeah i just loved i loved reading this I I loved all of the tension that gets ramped up here. And I really did. I mean, it's just, it's really only for, you know, 10%, 15% of the space on the page that I actually think, oh my gosh, these kids are going to get sacrificed. But that moment was really tense for me, right? Even though it, it doesn't linger for very long, it packed a, a punch. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's because Dunsany is taking his time, even though this is a very short play, really putting all the tragic pieces on the board. The opening that is reminiscent of Hamlet, the concern about the king's pride and wealth and ego, um, the fact that everybody's talking about that he'll need to be brought down by a god in order to not supersede them in the minds of his people, which we see written in the play as the boy, you know, praying to the sacred object that is, you know, another use of autonomy, the sacredness of the king, uh, which the door represents, and the king's lack of hospitality, like all of this stuff is setting up for a tragic play. And so when the king says, like, I'll sacrifice a child, you are fully bought in to the dramatic irony, which, you know, for people who don't know, that's when the audience knows something that the characters on stage don't. 
is going to lead to everybody's demise in some way. Like the way Oedipus doesn't have the information that he needs to stop the plague uh, because he is the criminal that's a you know the great play where the detective is also the criminal and they don't know it uh that's a great use of dramatic irony here and it leads to his demise and the demise of others in terrible ways and it feels like this is the sort of direction the sort of genre that Dunsany is pulling on and the way he subverts it i mean really truly when i you know got to the end of the play uh I was really only paying attention to the tragic elements. And I, and I think I spit out my black tea that I was drinking. I said, <laughs> he did it. He pulled it off. Um, it was such a delight to kind of get to the end of this play. Uh, is anything in this play actually tragic? I mean, the, the end is kind of a punchline. Um, do you feel like it's, it's a tragic play for anyone involved? So no, I don't think it is. I think there are a couple of things going on here and obviously they're, they're reading it backwards, right? We see this, this is a comedy from the perspective of the boy that the story, the boy is going to go home and tell to his literate and educated dad about why he has the crown and scepter of the kingdom and is playing with them as toys and where he has this big chunk of gold from is is going to be this fantastic story about how he just randomly luckily found this bit of gold then he went and asked for a new toy and then he got it from the the king it was just there waiting for him this is a, a fantastical happy story at least for this kid that almost has a real kind of fairy tale origin story to it right like like that this is just kind of the first paragraph of a of a fairy tale about this boy's charmed life and we're going to follow him with these accoutrements now go off and run into some genuine obstacles and have to use these accoutrements in order to overcome them and of course Dunsany writes stories like that all over the place but that's not actually what's going on here but in the sense that anything here is actually tragic nothing really feels tragic to us the audience because we don't really have a whole lot of empathy or or sympathy for the the king him himself so it doesn't really matter to me that he's given up his crown and scepter especially since he says that he doesn't actually need those accoutrements in order to continue to to rule in order to maintain his position at the top of society and so there is an element of almost sarcasm here a kind of ironic sarcasm here where Dunsany is showing us this intense tragic political religious drama that's playing out with these adults but it turns out that the whole premise of their actions is false that it's actually all just about a kid looking for a new toy but these adults are actually kind of too stupid to realize that and there's there's some sense here for me that I had to think that this was some kind of commentary on politics circa 1914 in the British Empire, right? That this is a, a dig on politicians who can't see what's right in front of them and the whole premise of their discussions about which policies they should enact and which they shouldn't and what the future portends is just false. Yeah, that's a really excellent point to put this play into the context of, you know, gearing up for World War One, um, you're looking at a writer here who's using a play to be critical of the whole system of thought that is pushing this war machine forward instead of pumping the brakes. And that really leads me to ask uh, another question, maybe if we can keep it in the context or, or outside of it, is do you think that the stars and the gods are real? Or is this a mundane universe with supernatural beliefs? In other words, is there a non-metaphorical conflict between the material and spiritual world in this story? 
what I don't know. What do you think? This is uh, kind of a this this kind of had me scratching my head a little bit as I was thinking about what Dancini is doing. Are these people acting in a supernatural world in some way? So my my first instinct here was to see this as being critical of religious belief and organized religion. But there was a moment near the end where I started to think, yeah, but how did the kid get this lump of gold in the first place? Right. It's just this happy accident that he found it in the river. And if we pair that with the shooting star line that you mentioned earlier, is that actually the shooting star? Was the kid the instrument of the stars the whole time and just didn't know it? But I think that for me, the reading of this really hinges on this line about the stars loving the children and the king totally misinterpreting that, like really thinking that that means they like to eat kids. Because because the, this business with loving the children, right? This is this is out of the gospel, right? This is this is cribbing some language from Christ. And what this then seems to me is that Dunsany is trying to point to uh, people who are preaching Christianity or or using uh, a Christian cosmology in order to promote their agenda or their worldview in a number of issues, but they clearly don't actually understand even what the text really is about. And you know, thinking about the Edwardian period, I know you mentioned that this is uh, in the lead up to, to the First World War, though I, I don't know that that would have been quite on the horizon when he was necessarily writing this. We should say, by the way, Dunsany, of course, served in the, the First World War. He went on to, to, to serve during the war. But this is a time when the British Empire, when the UK is still dealing with child labor laws and uh, all sorts of things about workers' rights and the question of whether the government is there to protect the people, to protect all people, is there to serve all people, or is there to protect the aristocracy, is there to maintain the status quo. I don't know anything about Dunsany's politics, but this to me feels like he's taking a side in that in that ideological question there, and that this business with what it means to love the children and the fact that these politicians don't really get that, uh, that, that suggests to me that he's being critical of something here anyway. Well, absolutely. I think if we're if we're looking at the play in this light, uh, Dunsany is critical of empire building uh, and wealth hoarding on a lot of levels, um, and that the king thinks if it's for the people, if the people are treated well enough, he can kind of get away with anything. Uh, and the reason why I think war is on Dunsany's mind as he's writing this play, um, though I think what we'd probably have to do a little more research to verify that, is just the centuries talk about war and the the discussion they have about the enemy as, you know, like hill people or just this, this characterization of how easy it'll be to win a war against the enemy that doesn't really take into account the fact that people are going to die for the king and that the king is just going to become more wealthy or gain more power if they win. Uh, and at what cost is that going to happen? How is that going to spill out and, and be good for the rest of the people who really have to deal with it? The second century, who's the happy one, the one who just wants to go live in the shade, says, like, there can only be a little war with the hill folk because it's not possible to do a big war and the king will easily crush them and the, the king will gain in wealth. So that that's why I think this is also part of what Dunsany is, is critical of. Right. It certainly does seem critical of a lot of things that would have been of real 
contemporary interest and and something that I found really kind of fascinating while I was reading this was was thinking back to Arthur Mackin's story the the Bowman which has all of this sort of rah-rah patriotism wrapped up in the first world war even as the tragedy of the first world war is is getting underway, right? That the reports of tens of thousands of casualties have already reached London. There is this still sense that the war is going to be over by Christmas. But here in in Dunsany, even before that war has started, before that war is even on the horizon, though, of course, the the Boer Wars have have wrapped up and there have been wars all around the globe, really horrific wars all around the globe. We are seeing this, this criticism here of imperialism and expansionism at least if at least that's how i'm reading these lines and i thought that was a neat comparison so i think we've kind of come down on the side here though we though we took a little uh a little side path that this really that that Dunsany is using these sort of belie- religious beliefs or cosmologies um the maybe stranger in th- from Thessaly here is meant to highlight the uh, an outsider's perspective on some of the absurdity of the beliefs as Dunsany sees them that are uh, hypocritical uh, and, and not really for the welfare of all the people. I mean, the fact that children could be sacrificed here means that there's always an underclass that can be sacrificed in order to keep the status quo going. And, and Dunsany is engaging with that idea in this story, uh, which means that you know, maybe you and I as readers are coming down on the side that there are no supernatural, there are no like legitimate supernatural elements to this story. So we're doing this on Elder Sign, uh, a weird fiction podcast here. So let's talk about some of the fantastic elements of the play and, and how they come into play. Uh, where do they, where do you see, you know, the fantasy elements or the, the weird elements, uh, if there are any, come into the plot in the play? And how do they work if if they really exist at all? Right, because we're not actually in a fantastical setting. We're in a, a perfectly mundane terrestrial setting that is familiar to us, or or at least if it's not familiar to us, it's because of its antiquity, not because it's on another planet or in an imaginary secondary world. So the fantastical elements that we have really are wrapped up then in the religious beliefs, in the cosmology of these people, and that they think that everything is ordained by the stars, uh, that God Gods are, in fact, the the messengers and maybe the terrestrial agents of the stars. They seem to actually come down from the stars. We get some lines that suggest that. But that really seems to be the extent to which there's anything fantastical or anything really numinous, anything kind of magical going on, is the power of these stars. I guess there is a sense that the stars will communicate their wishes through prophecy, though we don't see any examples of of something that would have been regarded at least maybe objectively by us, the audience, as a legitimate and true prophecy from the stars, because the whole thing is a joke from the start. So unless we're going to come down on the side that this lump of gold that the boy has is is a fantastical element, I, I don't see that there is anything that is legitimately fantastical here. And, and even really the the fantasy elements are just wrapped up in these, these religious beliefs. Yeah, I agree with you. But I, I also do find it uh, compelling, or at least a compelling argument that the boy finding the lump of gold that really sets this whole play in motion. One, it happens off stage. Two, it's associated with this shooting star stuff. Uh, three, this boy's bold and <laughs> he's a little mischievous. Uh, that 
there there could be that element of the stars if they love the children using children as uh these sorts of messengers in in strange ways certainly that argument could be made in this story and and i think you know we have to add it uh i think we have to add the writing prompt that we've come up with which is what what is this boy's life after the story he certainly lives a, a charmed life i think even he would agree with the cosmological beliefs in the in the area that he's raised in and would find himself to be charmed, maybe even to have found the favor of the gods. And there's a really a whole story there that Dunsany sets up with the story of the boy in this play. And I think it's really fantastic. Yeah, I would love to read people's take on this, right? What is the story? Like, you know, take take the prompt there, right? This is the first paragraph of a fairy tale about this boy's charmed life. I would love to read some fan fiction uh, about this and especially to see, you know, what other power this uh, this lump of gold has, or the scepter and the crown, and so on. You could go in a lot of different ways with that. I think all of them could be really cool, and I'd love to read them. Well, it certainly sets up a, 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 a farce as a sequel with the boy traveling and pretending to be a king somehow. How else would he get these things? Um, there's so much farce that can be... There's so much uh, like mistaken identity stuff and, and other great comedy elements that Dunsany just builds into this play for uh, a future story about the boy. It's really... It's really funny, and I, I wish I could write comedy, but I just can't. So I'm relying on our audience to come up with something. So on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Golden Doom. And if you have a story brewing, uh, we'd, love, we'd love to read it. You might be able to comment more about the historical context of this play as well, and let us know what sorts of things we missed in our discussion about the historical context of when this play was written. Right. And something I'd love to talk about on the forums as well is why Thessaly. You had a kind of Iliad reading of that, Brandon. Something that I was thinking about is uh, Paul having a relationship with Thessaly in the New Testament. Uh, I think that's something we didn't really maybe take up as much as we could. That's a conversation that I would love to have on the forum. Well, before we leave, I just want to say thanks again to our Patreon supporters for helping us get to PhilCon. We really did have a blast there, and we're excited to share all of that content with you. But next time here, we're going to be back with a return to a standard prose narrative for the first time in 2020. And this will be also our first story by Edith Nesbitt, The Ebony Frame. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.